Father God, we seek your honour and your glory in all things. And we ask now that you speak to us, that you speak to each one of us what you want us to hear, for our comfort, for our encouragement, but also to challenge us as we go forward to serve in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. A few years ago, there was some correspondence in one of our national newspapers. And it began with this letter. Dear Sir, I have been going to church for 30 years. And in all that time, I have heard thousands of sermons. But I find I cannot remember a single one of them. And I have concluded that it's all pointless. So I have stopped going to church. Yours faithfully. As you may imagine, that provoked a lot of other letters. And backwards and forwards went the argument whether you should attend church or not. But it was brought to an end with this letter. Dear Sir, I have been married to my wife for 30 years. And in all that time, she has cooked me thousands of meals. I cannot remember a single one of them. But I do know that without my wife's love and care that those meals represented, I quite simply would be dead. Yours faithfully. I've always quite liked that amusing story. But it does make a very serious point. What do we remember from the sermons that we've heard? What do we remember about the teaching of a particular biblical passage? I know myself from my own experience that I often struggle to remember what a sermon was about afterwards. And that includes sermons that I've preached. <laughs> if you struggle to remember a sermon and what it was all about, can I tell you for your comfort, you are not alone. For example, what is the story of Joseph all about? For the last three weeks, we've been looking at the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And we're going to end that story today. So for those of you who've been in church the last couple of weeks, are you beginning to see what the story is all about? Do you have any sense of what we might call the big idea, the central message of the story? What is it that God is teaching us here? The story of Joseph is one of the longest stories in the Bible. And it's quite complex. It operates at various different levels. Let me remind you of the story very briefly and very simply. The story of Joseph is an important part of the story of Jacob. And Jacob 
was the son of Isaac, and Isaac was the son of Abraham, and the three of them form what we call the patriarchs, the great founders of ancient Israel and its faith. And it's in the time of Jacob that the people of God, the people of Israel, go down into Egypt and settle and prosper until they fall into slavery and bondage from which they're finally delivered under Moses. And that's the story of Exodus. And Jacob has 12 sons. They go on to found the 12 tribes of Israel. His last two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, are clearly his favorites. They're the sons of his much-loved and favorite wife, Rachel. And so we see favoritism enters right at the start of the story. And favoritism in a family, as perhaps some of you may know from your own experience, can be a very destructive force. And so it is here. Joseph was his father's favorite. And as a sign of how much he loved him, Jacob gives Joseph a richly ornamented robe, the amazing Technicolor dream coat of Lloyd Webber's famous musical. And not unreasonably, this provokes the brothers' jealousy. And the situation does not improve when Joseph has two dreams which he arrogantly tells to his brothers and to his father, and which seem to suggest that at some future point, all the brothers and the parents will bow down and humble themselves before Joseph. To be honest, at this point, Joseph does not come across as a very attractive person. And we go on to see how dysfunctional this family is. While looking after the flocks, the family flocks, the brothers plot to kill Joseph. And he's only saved when a passing band of slave traders take him on, they buy Joseph, and he goes down into Egypt and into slavery. He enters the household of a man called Potiphar, whom we are told is captain of the guard and a senior official in Pharaoh's civil service. And it's now at this point in the story for the first time that we are told that the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. Indeed, we are told, chapter 39, verse 3, that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. As a consequence, seeing how able and successful Joseph is, Potiphar puts him in charge of all his household. And it's a kind of pointer of things to come in the story. Now, one of the features of this story, as I'm sure you, you've heard, is the place of dreams. We had Joseph's dreams right at the beginning. And now we come to some further dreams. Joseph is a handsome and attractive young man, and Potiphar's wife fancies him and tries to seduce him. But Joseph quite properly resists and successfully, but Potiphar's wife accuses him to her husband, and Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. 
But again, we are told, chapter 39, verse 21, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Another pointer of the things that are to come. But nonetheless, poor Joseph, sold disgracefully by his own brothers into slavery, he's now quite falsely and wrongly imprisoned. But the Lord is with him. Two of the prisoners have dreams. They approach Joseph, who interprets the dreams for them. There's Pharaoh's cupbearer, we might call him steward, and there's Joseph's baker. And they come to Joseph, they want an interpretation of their dreams. Joseph tells the cupbearer good news. You'll be released soon and restored to Pharaoh's favor and service. The other prisoner, the baker, the news is not so good. He will be released, but immediately executed. And the dreams come true. But Joseph is forgotten. He remains in prison, languishing for two more years and wondering, no doubt, what is going to happen to him. Still more dreams. Pharaoh has a dream, or rather two dreams. In the first, seven fat, healthy cows come up out of the River Nile, but they are eaten up by seven poor, thin cows. In the second dream, seven ears of corn, healthy and good, grow up, along with seven other ears of corn, thin, scorched by the east wind. And the thin ears of corn swallow up the seven healthy, good ears. And Pharaoh is very troubled by these dreams, but no one he asks can interpret them for him. And then the cupbearer, the steward, remembers Joseph. And Joseph is summoned from the prison to appear before Pharaoh, who explains his dreams to them. And this is Joseph's response. Chapter 41, verse 16. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And so Joseph goes on to interpret the dreams. We know what they are. Across Egypt, seven good years of harvest, followed by seven years of famine. That's what the dreams clearly mean. And Joseph takes the liberty of telling Pharaoh what he, Pharaoh, should do. He should find a man whom he can put in charge of all the country to store up food in the good years and then see it fairly distributed in the bad years. Surprise, surprise, Pharaoh, discerning God's hand in Joseph's answer, appoints Joseph to be the very man to carry out this enormous and hugely responsible task. And in the face of the oncoming famine, Joseph will be the saviour of the people. In Egypt and far beyond. Pharaoh puts a ring on Joseph's finger, a gold ring round his neck. He clothes him in fine clothes and he gives him a fine chariot. 
And now, next to Pharaoh himself, Joseph is the most important person in the land. I think on those lovely words from Psalm 118, the Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Well, we're halfway through the story. What a transformation in Joseph. The arrogant, rather unattractive teenager, sold by his brothers into slavery, carried off to Egypt, languishing miserably for years in an Egyptian prison for a crime he did not commit. Now, next to Pharaoh, the most important person in the land. And I wonder if we see here something emerging of the picture of a suffering saviour. And God, the Lord, was with him. We were told in last week's sermon, very helpfully I thought, <coughs> that we often hear people say that the Bible, written so many thousands of years ago, has no relevance at all to us today. But that's not true. That's not true. Look carefully at the Bible, and you will find how extraordinarily relevant and powerful and convincing its teaching is. And certainly that's the case here with the story of Joseph. It's a human story. It's your story. It's my story. It's our story. In all our sin and confusion, it's our story. Family favoritism, jealousy, anger, betrayal, lust, the abuse of arbitrary power. It's all there. But also, also, an awareness of and trust in the presence and the providence of a sovereign God who remains in charge and whose loving purposes will not be mocked nor thwarted. What a story for us today is the story of Joseph. So are you beginning to see any big ideas emerging? Can you begin to see a central message in the story that you will remember and reflect on? In preparing this sermon, I consulted a number of commentaries. One of them made a very interesting point, which I have to admit I'd never really considered before, and I wonder what you will think of it. And it's this. The first half of the story of Joseph deals largely with individuals and how they behave. Joseph, of course, Jacob, Reuben, Judah and Tamar, as we saw, Potiphar, Pharaoh. And the commentator suggested that we in the West, in our Western culture, being very individualistic, find the first part of the story of Joseph attractive and particularly fascinating. Whereas the second half of the story, the second half of the story is all about the family. The emphasis is on the family. It's family-oriented. 
And that aspect of the story appeals to and is attracted by those whose cultural background is not in the West. I think that applies to us. Because we as a church, Magdalen Road Church, have committed ourselves to developing an intercultural church. We want to welcome and integrate and work with and witness with those who don't come from the West. And so this second part of the story is perhaps one that we need to think about very particularly and very carefully. And we turn to it now. The seven predicted years of famine have arrived. It's very severe, far beyond Egypt. Jacob and the family are struggling in Canaan. And Jacob hears that there's food in Egypt, so he sends his sons to Egypt to buy food, keeping only Benjamin, his other favorite son, back. The brothers, his sons, make two journeys. They meet Joseph, and they appeal to him to sell them food, which he does. Joseph recognizes them immediately, but they don't recognize him. And in fulfillment of those first dreams, they bow down before him. They humble themselves before him, whom they had hated so much that they had plotted to kill him. And we read in the story, Joseph's overwhelmed to see his brothers after all that's happened. And he's overcome with emotion. We're told he turns aside and he privately weeps. Dreams are certainly one of the features of the story of Joseph. Tears are another feature. But to his brothers, Joseph remains harsh and threatening. He accuses them of being spies. And he sets out to test them, to see how sincere they are and whether they have any remorse, any regrets for the way they treated him. Joseph imprisons them and he tells them that if they are to prove the truth of what they've been saying to him, then they must go back and return with Benjamin. Benjamin, who was by birth the closest of all the brothers to Joseph. They had the same mother and father. Now, as I said at the start, it's a complex story and it operates at various levels. We saw last week how Joseph's treatment of his brothers provokes them into confessing among themselves how badly they've treated Joseph when they sold him into slavery all those years ago. Chapter 42, verse 21, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And that's why this distress has come upon us. And the lesson begins to emerge and is clear. Admit your sins, confess. And the way to salvation is open to us. And in our passage today, which Phil read to us, we saw how Joseph, unable to resist any longer, makes himself known to his brothers. It's a very dramatic and a very moving scene. He sends everyone else away, and then we read, 
Chapter 45, verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Friends, I really do think now we are coming to the very heart and the very core of this marvelous Bible story. Listen carefully to how Joseph continues. Verses 4 to 7. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one who sold, the one who you sold into Egypt. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Apart from anything else we see here in this transformation of Joseph, we see his willingness under God to forgive his brothers and ultimately to deal with them generously and graciously. For after all, they are his family. Let me digress just for one minute. In 2000, I went for six weeks on study leave granted to me by my presbytery to study Islam in Pakistan. And I spent time in the Christian Study Center in Rawalpindi, which is next door to the capital, Islamabad. I found myself immersed in a totally different culture from my own and from what I was used to. And one thing I learned was the different approach to family life and family responsibility. The family, the extended family, was all important. Parents, grandparents were respected and honored and cared for. And I learned somewhat to my surprise, I admit, that people worked and earned an income, of course, but not just for themselves and their immediate family, but to help their brothers, to help their sisters, to help a nephew, to help a niece with their needs, for a house, for school fees or school uniforms, for covering the costs of medicine and surgery. And something of this sense of a responsibility to the wider family is what we see in these last chapters of the story of Joseph. Go away and read them again for yourselves. So back to Joseph. If we remember anything from this sermon, if there's one thing upon which we should reflect in this passage, it's this. In all the mess, in all the pain and suffering and conflict, God remains sovereign. He will not be mocked. He will not be thwarted. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And it's grounded in his love and care for his people. He will save them. And he raises up for them a saviour. 
at the end of our story in the other passage that was read to us by Phil, Joseph puts it like this to his brothers, very simply and very clearly. Chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And friends, I can't read these words without jumping forwards to a story of a much greater deliverance and a much greater salvation. Of course, that wrought by the passion, by his death on the cross of Jesus Christ. In his great sermon to the crowd on the day of Pentecost, Peter spoke of the death of Jesus Christ in these words, Acts 2, 23 and 24. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Or Peter again in his sermon to the crowd after healing the crippled beggar at the temple gate, Acts 3 and 15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And Paul puts the same point in other words which we've heard several times already this service. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's a lovely verse. We should learn it by heart and think of it often. It's like a sweet that you put in your mouth and you can suck it and savor it and delight in it. It is pleasant and it is good. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Therefore, the point of the story of Joseph and what God wants us to hear and for us to remember, I'm sure, is this. We are free agents. We have free will. We can decide what we like to do and what we want. We're not puppets. We're not robots. We're not programmed computers. We're not artificial intelligence. But running, as it were, in parallel with this truth is the sovereignty of God, the kindly providence of God, whose plans and saving purposes for us will be completely fulfilled. And I admit there's mystery here. How can these two things, our free will and God's sovereign purposes, how can they be resolved? They can be. It's not a contradiction. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were given freedom by God to obey or disobey. And they chose to disobey and sin enters the world with all its evil consequences. But and many of you know the story, God begins to reveal his saving purposes from the Garden of Eden onwards. Or as we've seen, Joseph his father's favorite, provoked his brothers. They freely plotted to kill him in the event selling him to slave traders who take him to Egypt. But the Lord is with him 
And out of the suffering, the mess and the sin, God in his loving kindness brings about a great deliverance and the saving of many lives. The Jewish authorities, together with the Romans, freely resolve to have Jesus put to death and he is crucified and buried. But God raises him from the dead, confirming once and for all his loving, saving purposes for those who put their trust in him. Jesus is the suffering servant and saviour to whom the story of Joseph points. We could put it like this. Look carefully at the story of Joseph and you will see an outline of the coming of our saviour, Jesus Christ. Our free will and the sovereignty of God. No contradiction, but our mighty comfort and our hope. And I want to close with this. Our circumstances and our situations in this room this morning are all very different, no doubt. But we are equal and we are the same in this. We are all free agents. We can decide what to do and what to believe for ourselves. But turn to God. Decide again or for the first time to follow Jesus Christ and to trust him. And we will find that in all the mess, in all the sin, all the doubt and confusion, all the mistakes that we make and the bad choices that we make, God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. And it's to trust Jesus Christ and to follow him. And thereby we find the blessing that we find nowhere else, that Jesus alone is our saviour and our Lord and our friend. So what will you remember from this sermon and the story of Joseph? I don't know. But perhaps at its very simplest, and I put it like this for myself, not me and not us, but God. God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.